0: Uh, Let's get to it. We're going to finish up, Lord willing, right now, the book of Micah. So why don't you turn to Micah chapter 6 for tonight's study. One of the things we learned in our previous Wednesday nights is that Micah sort of marks his sections here in his book with uh, a little phrase, hear ye, or hear. When he says hear, it's almost like you have to say, oh, here's a new section And so really, here in chapter six, he starts with, hear ye now. Um, And that's a a sign of this third section. The first section was chapter one, verse two, hear ye all the people. And chapter three, he said, I said, hear. And then chapter six, he says, hear ye now. So some people kind of divide the book into those three chunks. We're finishing that final chunk. Uh, And in this chapter, chapter six, there's kind of an interesting conversation that takes place sort of in a kind of a rhetorical way between God and the people of Israel. And uh, it's, it's a short conversation, but it is a conversation nonetheless. And I find it interesting that God even wants to talk to these people. Have you ever wondered like, why does God even wanna talk to you or me? Why, why is prayer even something that works? Uh, but it is, and God is interested in communicating with his people. But, um, you know, how does he communicate? We see that in a kind of a beautiful way and sort of a heartbreaking way here in Micah. It's because the people have become jaded and have a bad attitude toward God. But God in his love and his long suffering and his mercy, he's just gonna be patient with these people. And, uh, you know, uh, I wonder, you know, if I were God, would I have crushed these people? you know, just getting sick of their bad attitude? Um, You know, would would we have just all uh, said, man, we're done with you. Um, But I love the Lord's long suffering, his patience toward us. And and this shows that if you ask me. So if you're looking at the, the first part of this conversation, chapter six, verses one through five talks about God's loving question. Uh, the Lord's loving question that he's gonna ask the people of Israel sort of rhetorically here. Let's take a look. Chapter six, verse one. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains and let the hills hear thy voice. Do you guys remember the mountains and the hills in this context? What are we referring to? Anybody remember? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Yes, somebody said it, the nations. Um, one of the things you can look uh, at in the book of Revelation, even in other places, and one of the things we talk about is expositional constancy. When you see sort of um, you know, idioms used by the Hebrew writers or the New Testament writers, one of the things you have to realize is they, they use these uh, idioms that they all kind of knew. And, and the mountain speaks of the great nations of the world or kingdoms, maybe you might say, kingdoms. Um, And the hills speak of the smaller. uh, And and that helps when you're trying to discern what the book of Revelation is talking about. And so um, that's something you should remember. So the Lord's saying, you know, hear ye now, the Lord, arise and contend before the mountains. You might say, or before all the kingdoms of the world and even the small kingdoms when it says the hills, let the hills hear thy voice. And that's what we're talking about. The mountains are the nations and the kingdoms. Verse two, hear ye, O mountains. The Lord's controversy, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me, for I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Um, this is interesting. Here, you know, when God says, I've got a controversy, the idea is that the, that's the King James way of kind of saying, um, I have an issue. I've got an issue with my people Israel. And uh, I, I, want to, um, I want to talk with you about that. He wants to sort of plead with them, not squish them, not smash them, but talk with them. Does that amaze anybody? You know, especially if, you know, you might, if you're new to the study, you're like, bro, you're just so brutal wanting to squish people and stuff. Well, if you understood these people, um, you know, Micah is seeing a rebellious Israel. These are people who the Lord saved them and blessed them and provided the land flowing with milk and honey and subdued all their enemies. And what did they do? Started worshiping idols and pagan deities. And by this time, they're already sacrificing babies on the altar to Moloch and Chemosh. They're, 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 they're sizzling these babies on these frying hot altars. Like that's enough to make me want to squish them. You know, it's, it's sad because we have parallels today in abortion when we see abortion in this land um, and around the world, millions. You know, it's, it's really um, amazing because comparatively the whole sacrificing babies on altars of Moloch and Chemosh and all that, um, you know, that, that's bad enough. But you know, that might've been thousands of babies that they did that to, but in this world, millions and millions and millions of babies, especially since Roe versus Wade, have been sacrificed, really for people's pleasure. Honestly, that's what it gets down to. I'm not ready for a baby. I want to live without the, you know, ball and chain of a of a child. And so we think that it's okay. And man, I have to admit, I I, I was glad to see this week that that crazy. Um, you know, bill that was being put out there to basically allow abortion of a full-term baby. I don't know if you were following that this last week, but fortunately that was uh, pushed down as it should have been. Horrifying, uh, kind of, yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, if I'm God, I'd be like, okay, I'm done with you guys. There goes Israel. You know, it's like a little splat on the windshield. Uh, but God's, God is merciful. I, I do have to say I'm, I, you know, as I look at that I think oh lord i 'm thankful for that personally, because I should have been squished. I should have been bugged, but you know what the Lord says? He says, um, "I want to sort of reason with you uh, that 's the idea isn 't it weird that the God of all the universe is willing to reason with puny little humanity? Uh, I love the scriptures that talk about this, like Isaiah one eighteen is one of my favorites. Come now, let us reason together." saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they will be white as wool. By the way, wool, some of you are like, wool is kind of an off-white color, Uh, dingy. Well, actually, uh, when I was in the 4-H as a kid, one of the things we did, uh, along with cattle, is we also had sheep when we were little kids. Um, And one of the things we did is, I don't know if you guys have ever seen like a Suffolk lamb that is all washed uh, when you wash wool really carefully, it is as white as snow. It's amazing how white. And, and also you use these shears and you trim their little wool just so it's perfect. Like a, just a perfect little you know, sheep wool uh, ball. Uh, and that's how they graded you. If you're, if you're shearing and your, your, your wool was just perfect, but it was white. It, when you washed it, it was white. That was kind of the thing. And so here's what the Lord's saying. You know, he's saying it'll be as white as wool, though your sins be like uh, crimson. I love that. But the word their reason, Come now, let us reason together. Um, the Lord's saying, for your salvation, I wanna reason with you, and, and the Lord is reasonable. I have to say, he's reasonable, not just in our salvation, but also in our service. Look at Romans 12, you guys know this one, Romans 12, one. I beseech you therefore, brother, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So not only in salvation does the Lord reason with us, but he's reasonable in the sense of our serving him as well. So here in the book of Micah, chapter six, we're seeing God simply reasoning with the people. And that's kind of this this phrase when he says, I have a controversy and I wanna talk to you guys about that. Um, And that's the heart of the Lord. I love that, that he's saying that. Um, And then he asks, he says, what have I done to you? What have I done to you guys that, that makes you, come against me or, or rebel against me. What have I done? Um, in some of you, you, you recognize this as a parent. Um, if you have teenagers, you know, and, and they've rebelled. If, if you're a parent who's had a, a teenager who doesn't really, you know, it's like the mother that's saying, you know, I gave birth to you. And the teenager's like, gross. I don't even want to hear about that. La, 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 la. But as a mother, you're like, I went through pain and suffering for you. And, uh, and until the, the, the teenager feels that themselves, or or whatever, they're never gonna really fully appreciate what you have done for them, just, just giving birth. That's enough right there. Um, but the Lord is sort of saying, you know, what have I done to you guys? And then he even reminds them, he says, verse four, because I'm the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You were slaves for over 400 years in Egypt. I'm, I'm the one who did that. I'm the one who freed you. And oftentimes we forget the good deeds that people have done to us, how much more do we forget the good things the Lord has done to us? And the children of Israel are no exception. I mean, God had done so many wonderful things and the people were having a horrible attitude against God. And he says, I redeemed you out of the house of slavery is the, the language there out of the house says servants in the King James, but I delivered you from slavery. And, and then he says, and I brought, I raised, I'm the one who raised up Moses, Aaron and Miriam. Um, now, this is an interesting thing here, by the way. Um, this is one of those moments in the Bible. I, I find it interesting that the Lord, um, you know, uh, the Lord actually remembers all the things that, that you know, we do. Um, and um, it's interesting because he lists, you know, Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, um, one of the things about that, by the way, is uh, Moses and Aaron kind of make sense. Moses was the main head honcho and Aaron was sort of the next in line and, and sometimes spoke for, for Moses. But Why is Miriam listed here? Um, I think the Lord acknowledges Miriam and her role, uh, uh, which is interesting because in Bible times, you know, leaving the woman out of the list would have been the normal thing to do. Um, and, and especially when you look at Miriam, Mir, Miriam had her strong points, um, but she also had a few weak points. You know, if you're, you know, remember, you know, Miriam was the sister of Moses uh, and of Aaron, so they were brothers and sisters, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Exodus chapter two, verses two through four, First Chronicles th- six, three talks about that. Um, her name is prominent in the history of the Exodus. Um, she's called the prophetess, actually, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. So Miriam was a a prophetess in the Bible, which is kind of cool. She took the lead uh, in the singing and the song after the parting of the Red Sea. Do you remember that? Uh, Everybody crossed through the Red Sea and then Miriam busts out her tambourine and starts singing and dancing and celebrating. That's Miriam who started all that. Moses busted out a song too there. But Miriam goes down in history as the one who was rejoicing in the Lord. Excuse me, but she also led a rebellion uh, that was almost uh, successful against Moses, if you recall, um, when she said, You know, Moses, you've married a, a wife, a Cushite wife, um, and she said, Who are you, Moses, to be in charge of us? You're not all that. And her and Aaron started to rebel against their brother Moses. Do you remember what the Lord sent upon Miriam to kind of silence her? Leprosy. Excuse me. And then the Lord healed her of that because she repented and uh, got straightened out. But Miriam died at Kadesh, if you remember, during the second encampment at that place. Um, And toward the close of the wilderness wanderings, that's when uh, she was buried there in Numbers chapter 20. Verse one, we read about Miriam's passing, but she was a prominent figure. And it's interesting here that Micah, the prophet, you know, centuries later says it was Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Like that's an interesting thing that he leaves, leaves her in. Um, and um, part of me is amazed at some of the people that you think about some of these big Bible characters that may not have been a part of the Bible had it not been for a lesser character. Um, question, if Miriam didn't do all the things she did, would Moses have ever made it to be leader over Israel? No, if you recall, Miriam's the one who followed him in the basket as his, you know, when he was a baby and followed in the river's brink there and, and watched the basket float up to the princess there of Egypt where Moses was taken and saved from the slaughter of the Israeli boys. And that was Miriam who did that. And then got Miriam's mother to be the nursemaid for, the, for Moses. Like she really did, did some great stuff there. And it was, if it wasn't for Miriam, I, I think of Peter. Uh, you know, Peter's kind of a big deal in the early church, don't you think? And a lot of the Catholics are, yes, the Pope. <clears throat> um, well, would Peter have been there if it wasn't for one of the more quiet, uh, not like the cell phones, but the quiet disciples? <laughs> <clears throat> um, let's, let's shut those babies off. We've had a, a lately a lot of people's cell phones going off. That's, uh, we're gonna have to be like the movie theater. Please silence your cell phones. Um um, but, um, but as it turns out, uh, you know, uh, Andrew was the disciple and Andrew's one of those disciples you don't hear much about, but he's the one who actually brought Peter to Jesus and said, you know, I, I found the Messiah. Um, and I love that Andrew was, was the guy who brought Peter. And I do wonder, you know, in God's economy, who does God remember for what reason and the things, cause you might say, well, I don't do anything of great importance, you know, I don't have a, a, a you know a, a Bible study, or I don't have a church, or I don't have a social media account with you know hundred thousand followers, or I don't have this or that. I'm not an influencer, uh, which our culture you know has kind of esteemed, I think, in in the recent years. But you you might have a more quiet ministry. But I, I do know that the Lord notices all those things. And he's going to be the one who rewards those things. I almost get a snapshot that God's just saying, I saw what Miriam did. And she gets part of that list of what I did by raising up Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. I think that's an interesting thing that she's included on this list. And it's just kind of cool, speaking of God's faithfulness. Um, Well, um, all that said, um, you know, it also says there in verse 3, What have I um, done unto thee, and wherein have I wearied thee? Some of your newer translations say the word burdened, but that's the literal Hebrew translation of the word wearied uh, in your King Jimmy here when it says, you know, where have I wearied thee or literally burdened thee or put a burden on you? Um, One of the things that human nature does is acts like God has put a big burden on us, that God is burdensome. Um, Do you remember when the people were getting used to saying, oh, the burden of the Lord, The burden of the Lord. Do you remember what the Lord told the people? Stop saying that. God said, stop saying the burden of the Lord. Well, Well, we feel burdened. It's not my burden. Stop saying the burden of the Lord. Like the Lord had to tell the people to stop saying that. I remember in the 60s and 70s when I was a kid in the church and there was these, there was always the heavy people in the spiritual realm, especially those that were kind of just coming fresh out of the, the hippie, you know, pot smoking hippie thing. Uh, Cause our church had a lot of those, praise the Lord, they were all getting saved, but they were also still, I think, getting rid of the, you know, the cannabis out of their system, if you know what I mean. And they'd walk around, man, the Lord's just, I just have a heavy burden, man. I'm burdened. And I just remember thinking, no, you're just weird. Maybe high. (laughs) The burden of the Lord. Do you guys remember that? There was a a thing back then where it was kind of cool to talk about the burden of the Lord. Um, But it's interesting because Jesus didn't talk like that at all. In fact, if you recall, Jesus said in Matthew 11, uh, you know, 28 through 30, Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy easy, and my burden is light that's just a human nature thing to say oh god has burdened me or i'm going through such troubling times and it's there's there's a number of reasons why you might feel burdened um but as it turns out if you're i think doing what god wants you to do and putting your trust where it needs to be that burden will be lifted no matter what you're going through God wants you to have that easy load, that burden that's light. He'll take your burden and he'll make it easy and light. That's what God promises. And by the way, one of the things you and I as Christians are supposed to do is bear one another's burdens as well. It's part of what the church is supposed to do um, to, to try to come alongside of people and bear one another's burdens. So when it says here, you know, the people felt wearied and the Lord saying, you know, um, what have I done to thee? And, and why, are, why are you saying that I'm the one who's wearied you? And he says, testify against me. In other words, it's almost like a courtroom scene here. He's saying, what's your testimony here to say that I'm the one who has burdened you? The truth is, and we know this from reading the rest of the Bible, that the people were burdened because of their stupidity. They were burdened because of their sin. They were burdened because of their own behavior and they were blaming God for it. Same thing humanity does today. Um, Humanity loves to blame God for stuff. Um, when it's really their own fault, um, and truly that's just human nature. It's immaturity. It's it's craziness. God is the one who takes burdens. His load is easy. His burden is light. Um, but these people are doing kind of the classic thing by saying, you know, we feel wearied and burdened because of God. Um, and the Lord says, No, I, I'm the one who eased your burden when I brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt, when you know Moses and Aaron and Miriam were raised up there. So then he says, in verse five, he goes on, and he says, um, "O oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shatim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the lord he 's reminding them of an old story um, when the children of Israel were you know, uh, you know, there in, in the days of Joshua and stuff, they were, they were there um, and, you know, Balak, the Moabite, was wanting to curse the children of Israel. Um, but they did, he didn't know how to do that. He didn't know how to do that, but he did get a prophet. And there's a strange little prophet. And if you remember there in Numbers chapter 22, this crazy story of Balaam, the prophet. And it's a crazy story because um, Balaam, he, the Lord says, just go and speak the words that I give you. And Balak was saying, I wanna hire you, the, the Moabite prophet uh, to come and curse the children of Israel. So Balaam finally ends up going. And if you remember, he's on his way, he's riding a little donkey and it's, it, gets, it gets a little Mr. Red after that, if you guys remember. Uh, the, donkey, you know, the donkey sees the Lord with a flaming sword standing in front of him and the donkey stops and is like, oh, and, the, and Balaam doesn't see it. And, and he starts beating the donkey. Uh, and the donkey turns around and says, have I ever been like a bad donkey to you? <laughs> now now you got the, to- the, the the talking donkey in the Bible. That's an amazing story. Is that too hard for the Lord? That's again, where people say, Jonah wasn't swallowed by a whale or whatever. people say that stuff. Well, the Lord made a donkey talk. Again, I'm, I don't have a problem with that. Um, and then the guy starts talking like a horse because remember the donkey says, why have I ever been unfaithful to you? And Balaam says, nay. At least in the King James, it says that <laughs> Nay, That's all Balaam says. Um, it's an amazing story. And the donkey, you know, crushes his foot and it starts beat It's just an amazing story. Balaam's is just this weird prophet who's just wanting to do his own thing, but he's still called a prophet. And instead of cursing the people, whenever he'd stand up and, you know, okay, now curse them, there they are down in the valley. They'd get up on a mountain and he'd try to curse them and only blessing would come out. Um, wouldn't that be great if you had that problem? when you're wanting to curse people, you, you know, you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off. Hey, may the Lord bless you and keep you and may his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Why, uh, wouldn't that be great if you're like trying to say bad things? Well, that was Balaam. He just couldn't say a bad word, you know? Um, and they tried different mountains to try to say a curse, you know, several times. But finally, Balaam does something and, and um, he teaches them how to curse the children. He, I can't curse the people, he says but the people can curse themselves. And he says, here's what you do, Balak, get your, you know, your young, beautiful Moabite women, get them all spiffied up, have them put on makeup and brush their tooth and have them you know, all sexy and come down the mountain with their little idols in their hands and say, hey, you big boy, to the Jewish guys. And, and the, the Jewish boys would go, whoa, these are hot girls. And so they'd marry them with their idols. That's, this is Balaam's idea. The problem, you say, but that's crazy. It worked like a charm. Sad to say, the men of Israel they loved these Moabitish women and started, you know, taking in their idols, and they cursed themselves by doing sinful, evil deeds. Um, but. The Bible actually talks about this all the time. That's the thing that's interesting. It's a little story of the Old Testament that you may have colored when you were a kid, but um, the Bible talks about it. In fact, it's gonna talk about that as far as the church, the context of the church in the last days. Would you keep your finger here and go with me to Revelation chapter two? I wanna show you uh, where this story of Balaam comes up again. It's Revelation two, um, and it's when you know, the, the seven churches of Asia Minor are being addressed by Jesus himself. And the church that he's addressing here in uh, chapter two, right around verse 12 there, is Pergamos. Now, that word Pergamos is an interesting name for a church because if you break it down, per gamas or gami, does anybody know what the gami thing is? Like when you talk about polygamy or monogamy, what is that talking about? Um, It's like marriage or a relationship between a man or a woman. And per is where we get kind of our idea of perverted, um, so it's an object, the, the word Pergamos means objectionable marriage between two things. <laughs> that's, that's this church called Pergamos. So it says here in Revelation 2.12, it says, and to the angel of the church at, in Pergamos write, these things saith he that hath the sharp sword with two edges, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And you hold fast my name and hast not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwells. By the way, Antipas, interesting story, sideline note. Um, Tertullian writes about this guy, who was a, you know early church father. Um, and he wrote about uh, this guy, uh, Antipas, who was martyred. He was a dentist, a local dentist um, in those days, um, who was a faithful Christian. And um, he was, he was um, you know, told that he had to deny Jesus Um, But he would not deny Christ um, and his faith in Christ. And so they put him in what is the equivalent of a giant wok and fried him there slowly um, in this wok and killed him in a brutal, brutal way. Um, But he was one of the early Christian martyrs of the early church. This guy Antipas. And the Lord acknowledges him right here by name and says, I I know your faithful martyr uh, Antipas where Satan's seat dwells. Um, But And here's where Jesus gets down to the nitty-gritty of what's wrong with this church. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Um, You see, it's interesting because this Technique seems really rare in the book of you know, Numbers where the story of Balaam, he, he got him to mix it up with the Midianite women um, or the Moabitish women. But all this to say, this happens even today where we have an objectionable marriage. The church, if we're not careful, can be guilty of the Pergamos, objectionable marriage, pergamy. We, we could be a, a guilty of mixture is the idea. The doctrine of Balaam is that of mixture with the world mixing it up with, you know, trying to be godly people, mixing it up with godlessness. And that's really what is being referred to here in the book of Revelation. And, and, um, and it's also what we're referring to here in our text in Micah chapter six, when it says, you know, you've taken the, the um, you know, consulted of what Balaam, the son of Beor answered. Um, that is mixture, compromise in, in our faith. I hope we're not doing that. Well, that's that's the first section. God says, "Okay, this is what this is, you know, letting letting, you know, what my question is for you." And he says, "What have I done?" The second section of this, verses 6 and 7, speak of the the people's rebellious question. So, they answer God's question with a question. I wonder if they think they're really smart. Have you ever noticed that people that answer questions with a question it's like that that can be a smart technique. Jesus often did that. But wait to see this rebellious question of the people. We looked at this a little bit earlier, check it out, verse six. The people say, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for sin of my soul? Um, now, if you recall, we read this uh, in a previous Sunday morning message when um, we uh, looked at, you know, uh, this, this next verse, verse 8, where the Lord answers. Um, but this is the question they say, what do you want us to do, God? In rebellion, they're, they're answering. Um, it's a bad attitude from the people. And the Lord never really required those things of them, especially the stuff about sacrificing their firstborn. Did God ever ask people to, to sacrifice their firstborn? No, that's a different God. That was Moloch and Chemosh who wanted their firstborn uh, on those uh, gods and goddesses of the pagans. Um, it's like the Lord, the Lord has um, made their lives free. But the problem with freedom is sometimes we use our freedom to do evil stuff. And then we wonder why we're in trouble and we're miserable. And they, they say, man, we're miserable. What are we supposed to do, God? And it's not God's fault. It's their own fault that they're miserable. If you're a miserable person, you might want to check with that before you say, well, what is God doing in my life? Why am I in the situation that I am? Wowzee, wowzee, woo, woo. Woe is me. Um, why isn't God doing? It? Where's my you know, boyfriend or husband? Or where's my wife that I why, why, why don't have a good job? And we, and we get all um, whiny and wimpy. But we have to say, "Oh, wait a minute! Um, we need to just put our trust in the Lord. The Lord hasn't been the one to put this burden on us." And and these people are sitting there; they have this bad attitude. What do you want from us, God? Oh, horrible attitude! God forbid that we find ourselves being like these people. And then when the Lord answers them, um, it just is even more, uh, I'm gonna call this section. So we, you know, we've, we've thus far, we've seen his, his loving question, the Lord's loving question, verses one through five, the people's rebellious question, verse six and seven. But thirdly, we see the Lord's loving answer. And we see that um, in verses really eight through 16. It says in verse eight, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. We looked at this a couple Sundays ago. And if you missed that study, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. It's an important part of the Bible. This this verse is one of the more famous verses of the Bible because it's the Lord boiling it all down to total simplicity. 613 Jewish laws the people had that they were supposed to keep. And that's one of the reasons why they're rebelling here saying, what do you want us to do? All this stuff and the Lord says, you already know what to do. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Um, you gotta love this. Um, and, and, the, it, and by the way, this whole thing of what the Lord really requires of us is um, you know, what are we supposed to do as people? I love what John 6, 30, uh, 28 through 29 talks about. Then said they to, to Jesus, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work. And notice that's a, a singular One work, Not the works. They're asking, what are the works of God? He says, here's the work of God that you believe on him who he hath sent. Um, That's the big work that we're called to do. Not works. What are the works that I should do? Nope. What is the work? Believe on him who the father has sent. That's Jesus. So what are we supposed to do? Believe in Jesus. I love that. Do you remember the story of the Philippian jailer? Uh, and, um, you know, Paul and Silas were singing praises at midnight. And as they sang praises, there was a great earthquake there in Philippi. Um, when we went to uh, Paul's missionary journeys, we, we got to go to Philippi. And we saw this very prison where Paul would have been held. Um, but the, the gates of the prison flew open. And they were able to walk out free. Their chains and their, their you know, bonds were all broken off. And they were just walking out. Well, the Philippian jailer, who would have been a Roman soldier was, was uh, freaked out because if you lose your prisoners, you're toast. You're gonna be killed, probably brutally. So the, the Philippian jailer gets his sword out and he's gonna like stick himself through because all the prisoners are gonna be gone. But Paul says, wait, do yourself no harm. And, and he says, we're all here, chill out, man. And so they all walk outside and there's the jailer and there's Paul and Silas. And I love it. It says there in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, it says they brought them out and said, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Don't you love that? Um, And then they were all baptized. I love this. Uh, You know, and, and by the way, um, this is what the, the, the church order is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, period. And then as a saved person, then you go get baptized. That's something you're, you know, asked to do by the Lord. That's, that's a link. It's not, you know, the work of salvation to be baptized. But when you do the work of salvation, then um, one of the things we get to do as a believer is, it's more of a get to, and it's a powerful part of our walk in our life to be obedient, to just uh, be baptized. So they did that. Um, some would try to add to salvation. You know, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and pass out Watchtower magazines and go door to door. And if people talk about the Holy Trinity, then you shake the dust off your feet. And that's the Jehovah's Witness. There's more, there's more works that you have to do to really be saved. Um, Mormonism, depending on which Mormons you talk to nowadays, Mormonism is really funny because um, it's changed. Um, it's amalgamated over the years and depends on which Mormons you're talking to there. You know, but if you get down to the doctrines and the covenants and the early Mormon writings and stuff, they've changed their doctrines covenants more than 3,000 times since Joseph Smith. Uh, how many times have we changed the Bible as Christians? Zero. Zero. Um, But the Mormons, 3,000 changes. Like, for example, um, they didn't, you couldn't, you know, polygamy was accepted. I mean, uh, you know, Joseph Smith had, what was it, 27? How many wives did he have? 20-something. And um, Brigham Young had 50-something wives. Polygamy was encouraged back in those days. But thankfully, they kind of figured out, yeah, that's a little weird. And so they axed that off their doctrines and covenants. And we could go on and on about some of the weird things that they had in Mormonism that I'm glad we've never had in Christianity, um, but Mormons are Christians. Um, the Mormons believe in a different Jesus than what the Bible actually teaches. But one of the things, and this is, this again, I, I talk to Mormons now. They're like, oh, no, no, we're saved by Jesus through grace. Um, but that's a person that doesn't really know their Mormon faith that well. Because they also believe that you're saved by being, you know, um, you know one who believes in Jesus and and you gotta be part of the Mormon church, be baptized into the Mormon church. You've gotta uh, you know, uh, really work hard because if you wanna get to heaven, you gotta be a really, really good Mormon. And if, you get, you know, if you're a really good Mormon, you might reach that, reach that from go from the terrestrial level to the celestial level. And if you're a really, really good Mormon, you'll become like a God. You'll enter the celestial level because God was once a man like you who was just a really good Mormon. And, and, and that, like, this is what the Mormons believe. And if you don't believe me, if you're a Mormon out there going, I, I go to the Mormon church and I, I don't know about that. It's because you haven't really read your own writings and know what the Mormon uh, doctrines really are. That's what I'm finding is odd that a lot of people are Mormons without really knowing some of the weirder things of their doctrine. Um, so I'm not saying that just to be mean, but, but that's why the Christian church has never let Mormonism in. Why? Because they don't believe Acts 16, 30 and 31. Uh, How do I get saved? And Paul and Silas were wrong if you're a Mormon when he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Um, That's the work of salvation. But be that as it may, some people try to add to that. Watch out for people adding to the work of salvation through Jesus only. Um, Well, that brings us to verse nine. Um, It says, the Lord's voice crieth unto the city. And the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod and who hath appointed it. Interesting that the, that the Lord brings up here the rod. Because um, the rod can be a, a, an interesting implement. Does the rod make you nervous or does it make you comforted? Um, remember the Psalm 23, thy rod and thy staff, they do what? Comfort. comfort. Why would a rod comfort a sheep? Well the answer is because the rod could be used as a disciplinary tool, but it could also be used as a protector from the wolves. The shepherd would use the rod to protect the sheep, and it's all a perspective if you 're walking contrary to God, then the rod becomes a disciplinary tool or implement and um, and 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 that's probably the context of what the lord's talking about the rod of judgment and correction and uh, and thus um, you know, the staff, by the, you, the, the rod of the staff, the staff was used to guide and redirect the sheep. The, more of the shepherd's crook staff, the tall one, but the rod was more of a club, shorter, and it was used to correct, but also protect. Um, but in this context, the Lord's saying, man, um, I'm crying to you guys that the man of wisdom would see that the rod of correction, the stuff that they're going through was, was uh, corrective. And, and even the Assyrian invasion would be a corrective smack with the rod of correction. And hopefully the Jews would, would hear it. But they wouldn't. We know the story. They wouldn't hear that. Um, I wonder if the United States, if the Lord is trying to get our attention through his rod. You know, you do wonder. Um, is the Lord, Because we've been very sinful. It, you know, if, if we think America has been amazingly godly, um, well, we need to reassess re, uh, our history and our, and our current behavior. Man, most of what we do flies in the face of God today. And if we don't see the rod of correction, uh, I, I, maybe that's part of what we're seeing right now is the United States continues to seem to spiral in the wrong direction. Um, you know, s- speaking of early fathers, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who people used to say he was an atheist or all this, but he, he wasn't, but he said this uh, in 1781, he said, God, who gave life, gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Does that sound like an atheist to you, by the way? Uh, no, Thomas Jefferson was not an atheist. Yeah, but he was a deist. Oh, people get into all this. It's, um, were you there? Uh, I don't think so. This sounds like a guy who knows what the Bible actually says. Um, and he's right. When I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever, how much worse is it today than it was in 1781? Um, and, and we do have to wonder, you know, what's gonna happen to the United States? As much as, a, as I'm a patriot and I wanna see the United States do well, and I pray for this country daily, um, man, if we keep going the route we're going, uh, don't be shocked if we see sort of that, that rod of correction. But be that as it may, we go on into verse 10. It says, There are yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is abominable. Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? Um, we talked about the deceitful weights you know, remember they would have the scales. And this is what, you know, this is, this is what Mike is talking about, that they, were, they had the scales of justice and, and they were sort of dishonest weights or unjust weights that they were hollowing out the inside of the weight to make it look like it was a shekel's weight, but it really was light. And they would rip people off with their fake weights. And the Lord's saying, you got fake weights and you got fake sinful stuff in your houses that you got by sinful means. And the Lord's saying, do you want me just to ignore that you've got wickedness in your house? And the Lord's saying, I'm not gonna just ignore that wickedness. Then in verse 12, for the rich men thereof are full of violence and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Are we seeing lies and deceit today? (laughs) It's shocking. Um, and, And man, now we don't even know what to believe. Uh, in what we're seeing and hearing. That's one of the reasons I think I love, you know, more than even Bible prophecy updates. When we talk about prophecy updates, we're talking about what's going on in the world, but who knows what's really going on in the world? You know, I mean, that's where I love talking about the Bible. Because when I'm talking about the Bible, I'm on solid ground. When I'm talking about geopolitics, who knows what we're talking about? That's a shaky ground <laughs> that we're on. Um, but, um, but right now we get to be uh, a people that look to the Lord and we have the Bible to be our solid rock, immovable, unshakable, and there's no fake news here in the Bible. Aren't you glad about that? Amen. Man, I am. Uh, well, verse 13, it says, Therefore also will I make thee sick in smiting thee, in making thee desolate because of thy sins. Now, is this the Lord just punitively punishing them? No, he's doing this correctively to try to move them to uh, repent. Um, So that's what he's, he's talking about. And how's he gonna do that? Verse 14, thou shalt eat, but not be satisfied. And thy casting down, that is like of seed, shall be in the midst of thee. And thou shalt take hold, but thou shalt not deliver. And that which thou deliverest, will I give up to the sword. Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil. And sweet wine, but thou shalt not drink wine. Um, you can work and do all the stuff, but somehow you're going to come up empty. Um, a lot of people, especially I would say in America, man, we've been working hard for a lot of years. And we, we work hard, but we f- still feel very empty. It's interesting because discontentment. Man, um, you know, it's, it's discontentment is like the lonely hitchhiker that we... Um, see only in the rear view mirror as we speed by in life, trying to get somewhere else. You know, the Lord wants us to, you know, learn to be content, the Bible says. But um, one of the signs that you're not doing what God wants you to do is when you get to a place where you're working hard, but you're seeing no fruit of your labor, you're spinning your wheels. That's what the Lord says, I'm going to judge you guys. And how I'm going to judge you is you're going to be sick, but you're also going to work your tails off but you're gonna get nothing from it. You're gonna farm, but you're not gonna be able to harvest. You're gonna you know, sow seed, but there's gonna be no harvest. You're gonna stomp on the olives for oil, but there's gonna be no oil. Um, you're gonna come up empty. And that's what happens when um, we do kind of our own thing. And that leads to discontentment, uh, unhappiness. The Webster's Dictionary defines discontentment a lack of satisfaction with one's possessions, status, situation. Um, just a lack of being content with what we have. Uh, Paul says, I have learned to be content. These people need to learn a lesson that God is the source of all things good. But they weren't, they weren't knowing that. So the Lord says, I'm gonna discipline you in this way. Well, um, then he goes on in verse 16. He says, for the statues, statutes of uh, Omri are kept and all the works of the house of Ahab and you walk in their counsels that I should make thee a desolation and the inhabitants thereof a hissing. Therefore, you shall bear the reproach of my people. Um, Who who is this, you know, Omri? Well, Omri is Ahab's father. Ahab was one of the most horrible kings. He goes on the top two or three evil kings in all of Israel's history. Um, And so they were following these evil leaders doing what the evil leaders told them to do. Um, And they just kind of went on like sheep following, you know, Omri and Ahab and keeping their statutes. Um, It's kind of interesting. It makes you wonder about, you know, um, is there a time when you shouldn't follow your leaders? And I know this goes without saying, but um, just remember when, when your leaders, were, you know, one, one thing the Bible says, we're supposed to obey the authorities that are over us. And there was some confusion on this. It's interesting how their church had to sort of rethink and remember what the Bible actually says. And there's some people that never really got this, I think. Um, but it's, it's really interesting because I've done whole sermons on how we're supposed to obey the laws of the land done whole teachings. We talked about that in 2 Peter, Romans 13. Um, there's definitely places where we as Christians, we're just supposed to obey the laws, of course. But at the same time, the Bible indicates that when leaders ask you to do things that are contrary to what the Bible teaches us, and when you're breaking what the Lord says to do and, you're, and the world's telling you not to do that, there's a point where you kind of have to say, you know what, we're not gonna just blindly, glibly follow the statutes of our leaders, and the Lord's indicting the people of Israel for following, you know, Ahab and Omri's statutes because they were they were evil, they were wicked uh, people. So that's what happened, you know, here at Eighthy Creek when when um, you know when we first heard about the virus in the pandemic, as they called it, um, of course we're like, well, if this is the Black Plague or you know um, you know some Scarlet Fever or some of these things, maybe we should be careful, and you know, of course we want to be reasonable. But when, um, when they started sort of these, um, you know, uh, draconian sort of rules and raw, and that weren't matching up just numbers numerically and, and then overreaching and there was all kinds of kind of craziness where, where when it started saying, you know what, you really can't gather as a church anymore. Um, and, and, and there's churches that are still crazy. They're not gathering still. Do you know that? Like, we've forgotten that because we've been gathering for, you know, a year and a half or more. Um, and, um, and we kind of forget. Sometimes I forget. I'm in a world here as a pastor here. I kind of forget about the coronavirus as an issue because uh, we're, we're, the Lord's blessed our church. Um, and there's been some sick people. But we've been biblically proportioned saved from the horrible pandemic out there. Or it's not exactly what they all said it was going to be. Uh, It's kind of interesting, but but one of our staff members left uh, and said, Brett, you're breaking the law by having people come to church, and I can't be on staff of a church that... You know, and and we, we talked and I tried to reason with them. And, and my logic was, was, listen, the constitution of the United States, we're the ones who are keeping the law by, by gathering as a church. And you know the government has no way to infringe on the gathering of a church. There's no provision for a, a government official to say you cannot get together and worship the way you want to worship. Um, thank the Lord for our constitution of the United States. So when we said that, uh, this staff member left. It was really heartbreaking to me. I don't understand his logic. Um, I think he was misguided and he was proven to be wrong when finally the governor of Oregon had to admit, we're not gonna you know, enforce this upon the churches. There was a quiet little uh, snippet in one of the press conferences um, after they received a, law, a letter from our lawyer, our, lawyer, our attorney, uh, saying that we have the constitutional right to meet. Um, but, but all that to say, um, we do have to think about that in these days. There might come days, I could see it, if we suddenly become Canada, for example. Um, don't be surprised if old Pastor Brett gets dragged off to prison. Uh, because I'm going to keep teaching what the Bible says. And I do see a day where that could come in America, sad to say, I hope not. Hope we still you know, believe in our constitution that we have the right to speak and freedom of speech, but also the right to meet as a church. But I see that being very much challenged and threatened globally. And uh, those things tend to creep into the United States. Uh, uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens. But know this, we're not lawbreakers until the leadership of our government will tell us to do things that are contrary to what God's word says. That was the indictment God says. You, you, you keep the statutes of Omri and the works of the house of Ahab, but you walk in their counsel, their laws. Um, uh, and Because they did that, he says, I'm gonna make you a desolation. And he did. Well, that brings us to chapter seven. Quickly, let's take a look. Woe is me for I am uh, as when they have gathered the summer fruits. As the grape gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man has perished out of the earth. And there is none upright among men, and they all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for reward, or like we said on Sunday, bribes. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. Um, The idea there of wrapping it up means that um, the, the... The leaders of the country are doing evil, sinful stuff behind the scenes, and they sort of cover it up, uh, um, you know, and we see a lot of that today. Verse four, the best of them is as a briar, the most upright is sharper than the thorn edge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh now shall be their perplexity. Uh, Trust ye not in a friend, put ye not confidence in a, uh, a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom, For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter in law against her mother in law, the man's enemies are the men of his own house. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. And we looked at this section, verses one through seven, on Sunday. Um, you know, and, and it speaks of the barest, barrenness of the land as he goes to get a vine, uh, you know, grapes from the vineyard. The vine here is not Jesus, by the way, if you're um, looking at this that way. The vine is also speaking of, of Israel. Um, you know, and the, the vine, but also the olive tree, the olive branch speaks of Israel. Um, but uh, all this is just the, the people are doing evil stuff. We talked about the word perplexity um, and that's the last days kind of language that Jesus used in Luke 21, that um, because of people's sin and the way nations go, they'll be perplexed. Um, and um, we talked about people uh, that you, 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 know, you won't be able to trust them. Uh, don't trust in a guy, don't trust in your neighbor, don't even trust anybody in your house. Now, this isn't arguing, by the way, that we be sort of cynical about humanity. Um, this is just the results of a people who are in rebellion. And, uh, and because of that, they couldn't trust one another. Uh, sinfulness leads to all, all kinds of other troubles and what have you. So um, basically, you know, verse seven is where it's, it's like Micah gives the perfect answer. And we talked about that on Sunday. You know, there's three things here. Look to the Lord, wait on the Lord, and the Lord will hear you. A great bit of advice in troubled days, uh, is what we saw there. But but beautifully, verse eight continues Micah's uh, recognition of what God, what we're supposed to do when we're in troubled times, verse eight. He says, Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. Um, when I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I like Micah's being positive, Mr. Positive here. When I fall down, I'm going to get back up. And he also says, um, When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Man, I love that about the Lord and his light. Psalm 119, verse 105, we've talked about this, but thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I love that. Um, Then in verse nine, um, we have sort of a gospel message tucked away in verse nine. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. Do you see the gospel in that little verse there? What a glorious description that Micah gives us there. Um, notice, you know, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned, but then he, he will do what? He will plead my cause. And this is, this is the uh, thing throughout the Bible that Jesus is our defense attorney. He's our defense lawyer, if you would, in the courtroom of heaven. And do you think that Jesus as our lawyer is gonna be successful? Because when you think about it, who's the judge? God, who's the prosecuting attorney? Satan, Satan. he says he accuses the brother in day and night. So there we are, Satan accusing you as a sinner, God seated at the judge you know, seat, but your attorney is Jesus. And Jesus is the son of the judge. And not only that, Jesus as your attorney paid your price. Nail prints in his hands, nails in his feet. And so when Jesus is pleading your cause and he took your payment, it's like you, you deserve the electric chair. You deserve you know, lethal injection according to the Bible. But Jesus took that for you and there rose again. And now as a resurrected Jesus, he's standing before his father um, and he says, I paid the price for this defendant. And so what does the Lord say? Case dismissed. That's, that's the gospel. Um, That's what it says. He will execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. Man, I love the gospel. Good stuff. Verse 10. Then she that is mine uh, enemy shall see it and shame shall cover her which uh, said unto me, where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now uh, shall she be trodden down as in the mire of the streets. These are the, the she here is the enemies of Israel saying, where's your God? But God is gonna redeem and save them. And uh, this is basically, you know, Micah saying the Lord's gonna protect. Verse 11. "Um, In the day that uh, thy walls are to be built, in that day shall the decree be far removed. In that day also, he shall come even to thee from Assyria and from the fortified cities and from the fortress, even to me, uh, pardon me, even to the river and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. Um, uh, Verse 13, notwithstanding the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. And this is something that happened. You know, um, the land was desolate. Uh, when the children of Israel sinned and all this stuff happened, the Assyrians came, the Babylonians came and drove them. There was a small return of a remnant, but even after that, Israel became a real desolate place. And what's so interesting to me is uh, in short order, they were able to um, really fix um, you know, the, the barrenness. Um, remember the Turks came, the Ottoman Turk empire, and they taxed all the trees in Israel. So the Jews started cutting down trees because they didn't want to be taxed. And so many trees were cut during those centuries of the Ottoman Empire, that it changed the whole climate of the land. And it became even more barren during the Ottoman Turk era. So by the time Mark Twain goes there 150 years ago, he writes a whole book, by the way, about his journeys to Israel. And he says, I have not even found one green plant for hundreds and hundreds of miles. That's how desolate Israel was. So this, prom- this promise came to pass. They became a desolate place there, as it says there in verse, um, 13. Uh, But God then in other passages says he would raise it back up as a fruitful branch and a fruitful vine. And the Lord has done that too. Um, Ezekiel 36 and 37 speak of the Lord regathering and restoring the beauty and the fruitfulness of Israel. Now Israel is one of the most fruitful countries uh, really in the world. It's kind of an amazing thing. Uh, So all these promises have come to pass. But then verse 14, to the end of this, we have sort of the closing prayer of Micah. Let's read verse 14. Now, by the way, the next, this verse, people argue, commentators argue, is this Micah or is this, um, is this the Lord um, who's gonna do this? Is the Lord speaking to Micah or is Micah speaking to the Lord? And uh, there's arguments about that. Um, but notice why. It says, feed thy people with thy rod, um, the flock of thine heritage, which dwells uh, solitarily in the wood and in the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old, according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. Um, I lean more toward the Lord saying, here's what I'm gonna do. But you could also say that Micah was supposed to do this stuff too as a prophet. Either way, I wouldn't die on that battlefield. Verse 16, the nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Um, This is one of those prophecies that's gonna happen, you know, with the Babylonians, the Assyrians, where people are hiding like in caves and holes in the ground. Um, but it's also sort of a maybe a foreshadow of coming attractions like in the book of Revelation. For example, Revelation chapter six, verses 15 through 17, it says, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and for every free man hid themselves. This is the tribulation period. Hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said unto the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand." Humanity doesn't do so well when we are under siege. You know, it's, it's um, it, when, we, when our grocery stores are inaccessible, when we don't have electricity. Have you ever watched the show Alone? where they drop people off up in the Arctic and they just have to survive for as long as they can. Whoever survives the longest wins. Um, it's kind of an amazing thing how humanity, even our toughest people don't do that great um, because it's hard to survive. But in the tribulation period, that's one of the things you'll see people, kind of like you know, what you saw perhaps when we saw um, you know, Saddam Hussein in a hole, when the Americans came in and found him in a hole in the ground, like he was literally in a little hole. Um, or in Afghanistan, some of the Taliban hiding in holes in the rocks in the mountains um, because they were uh, under sort of a siege in that way. In the tribulation, the rich men, kings of the earth, great men, they'll all be hiding in holes during the tribulation period. That's part of time I don't want to have any any part of. I'll, I'll be in heaven by that time. And so will you if you're a Christian because we'll be raptured. Praise the Lord. So where do they hide themselves? In the caves is the idea here is what it's, what it's saying. Um, we looked at verse 18 a couple of Sundays ago, who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. And man, that's a verse we should meditate on, memorize, love. This is one of the great verses of the Bible because it explains who God is. And it's a glorious, glorious thing. Verse 19, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And this was part of our study a couple Sundays ago. And then he ends in verse 20. Thou will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Um, When will Israel be uh, seeing the mercy of Jacob and the truth that's talked about here, mercy to Abraham? When's that gonna happen? When the fullness of the Gentiles come in, there's gonna be the rapture of the church and then it says Romans 11, 25, 26, it, the, all of Israel will be saved. God still has a plan for the Jews and they will see the mercy and the truth of God during those times. Mike is gonna see his people perish during his day. But the Jews would be saved in God's mercy during the tribulation period. That's what the book of Revelation is about. That's what the book of Romans 9, 10, and 11 talks about. And praise the Lord, God has a plan for the Jews. And we love that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, Lord, we're thankful for this uh, glorious reminder of your mercy and your truth. How thankful we are for Micah and this little book. And now, as we go our way tonight, I pray that we'd be mindful of your word And that these beautiful scriptures that we see of your mercy and your goodness would be um, just really locked into our memories, Lord, where you help us to, to just remember that you're faithful and you're long suffering toward your people. Even when we're in rebellion, Lord, that you are faithful. So we pray your blessing now. We commit our lives to you and your church to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.